Jeremiah has now been speaking God's word for close to 40 years. No longer a youth like what we read about in Jeremiah 1 when he was called by God. He's much older. He's probably my age, mid to late 50s. Yes, it's getting closer to late than it is mid, but somewhere in that range is Jeremiah. And I, I, I thought about that as I was studying today, and I thought, boy, I can relate to Jeremiah's ministry path. Uh, though I think I've had a lot easier time of it than what he did. Um, ten years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon, had carried the first exiles from Judah out of Jerusalem and into exile into Babylon. But he had spared Jerusalem and the temple, and he had set up a client king named Zedekiah, and he had left a good amount of people there, which was beneficial, but it kind of led to a false narrative among them that Jerusalem would never fall that they had been spared, and they could keep on doing what they had been doing. And now, their puppet king, 10 years later, Zedekiah has grown agitated, and he's grown ambitious, and he's beginning to get restless, and so he's aligned himself and Judah with a competing world power named Egypt. And he has rebelled against Babylon, And Nebuchadnezzar is not going to have anything of it. And so he takes his army and comes and sieges Jerusalem again. And this time, he will not be near as charitable as he was the first time. Jeremiah warns Zedekiah to surrender, uh, that he would live if he surrendered, that he should submit to the exile that uh, Nebuchadnezzar will enact But Zedekiah will have none of it. He's afraid, he's fearful of men, what they might say or do to him. He's got all sorts of issues, and mostly he doesn't fear God. And so Zedekiah imprisons Jeremiah. He puts him into uh, an imprisonment in the temple courts because in his mind, Jeremiah has been treasonous, offering counsel that is not from God, according to Zedekiah. And he doesn't like the negative effect that it's had on the people. It's that as a backdrop that really gives you context for what we're looking at today, which is a story of probably the most interesting real estate purchase that you'll ever see. Jeremiah 32 and verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of of Shalem, your uncle, will come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anathoth, remember that's their hometown, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, remember he's in prison there in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord. And he said to me, buy my field. That is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money 
on scales. Hanamel is asking Jeremiah to buy his field, which to us may not sound all that familiar that a family member would come and ask you to buy a plot of land. But for the Jewish person, it was very much the custom and tradition. It was spelled out by God in Leviticus, actually. If you were financially strapped and potentially losing your property, then it was set out by God that a family member, a male family member, normally the eldest of your family, would purchase that land from you so that it would remain in the family. And then if you got back up on your feet, you could return to that family member and purchase the land back. But let's be frank. Hanamel's request is really absurd, given the current situation they find themselves in. It'd feel like someone come to you today and ask you if you'd like to buy an acre in Afghanistan. Wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. It would seem rather foolish. It would seem like a really bad investment. Jeremiah is locked up, and Jerusalem is under siege. And at this very moment, we can speculate that some platoon of Babylonian soldiers are actually camping on the very field that Hanamel is trying to sell him because it's just three miles northeast of Jerusalem in Anathoth. And you got to reckon that the army is sitting on it even as they're talking. Either Hanamel is trying to exploit his cousin or mock his prophetic credibility. Or both. I got to wonder what his motivation was in all of it, but it certainly puts Jeremiah, who's, who you got to admit, things are not going that well for him. He's been faithful to the word of God, and it's landed him in prison, and a whole bunch of people that don't listen to him, and his family who's tried to kill him, and other assassination attempts, and other prophets saying he's a false prophet, and everybody resisting Jeremiah, and now his cousin says, Hey, I got a deal for you. Doesn't sound like a deal to me. But surprisingly, Jeremiah accepts his offer. And we know why. We just read the verses. He accepts, he buys the field, not because he's a real estate tycoon, but because God told him to do it, even before Hanamel showed up. There's just a little subtle undertone here that I want to point out. I love that God told him what he was to do and what was going to happen. And then the very next verse, exactly what God told him to do and what was going to happen, happened. That's the God we serve. Maybe you can identify with Jeremiah. Maybe there are things in your life that make you feel like you're under siege, mocked by others. Stuck in a prison of your own making. Feeling like things are just not going your way. It may be a breakdown in your marriage. And maybe that's been happening for 10 years. Or maybe it's a loss of a job. Or financial calamity or crisis. Or maybe it's the betrayal of a friend. Maybe your faith is crumbling, eroding, shaky. You feel like you're under siege. Like the walls are closing in on you. If you feel this way, this message is for you.
Let's continue. Verse 11. Here's what Jeremiah does. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. Why do we need to know all that detail? It feels like I'm with Linda Torres at a house closing right now. It feels like I've got attorneys slipping me papers to sign and things going here and money's changing hands and I don't know what's going on. I just keep signing. I'm glad Linda was there because I didn't know what was going on. It feels a little bit like that. Why do we need to know all this detail? Why is Jeremiah making such a huge production of all this? I think it's because he wanted everyone to see. You see, for decades, Jeremiah has been preaching doom and gloom. He has been speaking judgment. He has been determined to break the Pollyanna attitude of all of Judah that everything was going to be okay. Don't worry, be happy. He has been standing against the, the current culture, the trends of the day, even his leaders. He has been resisting what they have wanted. And finally... Reality is beginning to sink in on them. They're beginning to realize that all that Jeremiah has said is coming true. And it's in this place that Jeremiah does something that is completely out of character for him. And had God not told him to do it, I don't think he would have. He buys the field. He wasn't changing direction or his tune or retracting what he had said. Defeat, destruction, exile, separation, those things were still going to happen. But there was something else that they needed to know in the midst of all the judgment. They needed to know that God is still a covenant-keeping God. And that even though they had ruined their future. God still had for them a future and a hope. And so, because God promises redemption, he tells Jeremiah to redeem the field. It's always interesting when your life becomes the illustration for God's word. Prophets of the Old Testament were notorious for this. Isaiah actually walked around naked for a long time to illustrate what God's people looked like before him. I am glad no one called me to that ministry. And I bet you are too. Jeremiah himself has illustrated by doing all sorts of silly things like walking around with a, a, a yoke that oxen wear on his shoulders. Walking around saying, this is what you're like. And other prophets are coming and they're taking the yoke off of him and breaking it. It's a crazy time to illustrate the word of God. 
And now Jeremiah finds that he's doing it again. He's buying a field, not because the field was all that important, but because God's redemption that would come was. I wonder if you have ever thought to yourself, is my life actually an illustration of God's work and word to other people? Could it be? Would you allow it to be? Could it be with the way you relate to your family, to your kids, to your spouse, to your coworkers, to your classmates, to people that are around you, that actually the way you allow God to deal with you and speak to you and work through you would be an illustration of how he wants to work and speak and direct them. Listen, if God wants to still do that, and I think he does, are we willing servants? Are we willing to do what Jeremiah had to do. To do even foolish things, silly things, calling attention to things that we normally wouldn't because God is in it and he wants to show his redemptive power to a world that is dying and in darkness. God is still a covenant-keeping God and he says this too much to Jeremiah. He says, you're gonna redeem the field because I'm about redemption. I'm a redeemer. And as my friend Bill Murphy says, God takes as much pleasure out of redemption as he does out of creation. I don't know about you, but I'm a product of redemption. Actually, if you're in Christ, you are too. So I do know about you. We need to understand the power of God's redeeming work. And so he says exactly this to Jeremiah in verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. In their darkest moment, they're about to die. Siege is going on. People are starving to death. Disease is killing them. They're about to be carried if they survive into exile for 70 years. And God says, but that's not the end of the story. Hallelujah. I'm so glad God says that's not the end of the story. Aren't you? Have you ever felt like you're at the end? Have you ever felt like you're there with them? And yet God's saying, it's not over. In other words, this is a radical act of hope on part of Jeremiah in the midst of hopeless situations. G.K. Chesterton wrote, As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. Like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. King David put it like this in Psalm 62, Let all that I am wait quietly before God. For my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, where I will not be shaken. The Hebrew word for hope means being attached or tied to something. Like you would be strapped to something with a cord. Like tying down your bags on the luggage rack of your car or making sure the load in the back of your pickup truck is tied down. You want to make sure that it's tied down because wherever that vehicle is going, you want to make sure your stuff gets there too. Nothing more embarrassing than getting there and realize 
your, your suitcase fell off in Montgomery. We want to make sure that whatever we're tied to, it's going the direction that God wants us to go. And that means our hope, as David said, is in God himself. We put our hope in what will lead us where we need to be. And if it's in someone or something other than God, then it won't benefit you and it won't get you where you're going. And it's probably only hanging on by a thread. The writer of Hebrews said, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. There's so much imagery here. You know the, the, you know the curtain that hung going into the Holy of Holies and it was the, the holy place and people didn't go beyond that. But as Jesus hung on the cross, we know scripture tells us that the curtain that was hanging in the temple was rent from top to bottom, indicating that God had made a way now for us to go where we never could have before. And this says that where our hope lies is beyond that curtain where Jesus is. He's the vehicle that we're strapped to. He's, he's going the direction that we need to go and we've, we've taken our luggage and we've bundled it up with him and he has latched hold of us. And that gives us stability in whatever we face. It's more than wishful thinking, I hope for something nice to happen. It is confidence that is anchored in the certainty of God and his word. When he says it, it is so. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And as if the author wanted to make sure you got it, he repeats it. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, you may be sitting here saying, well, that's real fine and dandy for you. They pay you to believe that stuff. <laughs> but I am a little wobbly in my faith. I'm not so certain. I have my doubts. I have my reservations. I start second guessing. I get really wobbly. I don't know if my strap, my cord has gotten loose. Let me assure you that you're not alone. I would dare say that everyone, everyone who has chosen to follow Jesus needs to be reassured at some point or another. Even Jeremiah did. Look at verse 16. After I'd given the deed, a purchase to Baruch, the son of Dariah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah had really, I can say this with certainty, learned a lot of things from the Lord about walking with him over these 40 years. He had, he had learned a lot. He was older and wiser. And he has come to understand that when he's wobbly in his faith or uncertain about his future, the best place to look is not what he's facing, but rather God and who he is. 
He chooses to look at God and his attributes. And I know he's learned this because we know that this is the same Jeremiah that as a young man was called to be in ministry and he said, I can't do it. I'm too young and I'm not eloquent enough. And God said, would you just stop it? That's Chris's interpretation. And then this is the same Jeremiah who is lamenting about all the evil and wickedness that is around and allowed to prosper and that there's people out there trying to kill him. And God doesn't even answer him. And he just says, Jeremiah, if you're tired running against men, what are you going to do when you have to run with the horses? This is the same Jeremiah that had those conversations with God. And now he's having another one with God, but he starts in the right place. Ah, oh, Lord God. Thou hast made the heavens and the earth by your great power. Jeremiah has learned a thing or two, and it makes him align with God and who he is and what he does before he even raises his concern. When I used to lead worship back in the day, we had a little song that was based off of these verses. We used to sing it here. Oh, it's such a great song. But I have to smile now when I realize that most people don't realize the context out of which these verses came. We're all Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Bum, 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 bum. All Lord God. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Boom, 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 nothing. Right? Oh, man, that just, oh, I felt so confident in that. Nothing is too difficult for you. I mean, for me, I mean you. What a great song. But Jeremiah wasn't Mr. Confident when he said that prayer. He was Mr. Skeptical. <laughs> We're so confident who God is. Yeah. Jeremiah's like, Lord, you're great and mighty. But listen to what else he says down in verse 24. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And behold, the sword and famine and pestilence of the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass. And behold, you see it, God. I did what you said for me to do. Yet you, O oh Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. What are you doing here, God? I feel a little bait and switch going on. You told me to speak judgment and I did so, but now you tell me to buy the field? That doesn't make sense. It's made a spectacle of me. Hasn't my reputation taken enough beating? Haven't I lost enough? Did I have to spend my last 17 shekels of silver on a field that I'll never ever see? This time, God does answer Jeremiah's question directly. Verse 42. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have bought, brought all the great disaster upon this people. Oh, here's the promise. So I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Field shall be bought in this land, of which you are saying, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields 
shall be bought for money, and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah. Jeremiah hoped in a future that was yet unseen. And he kept hoping all of his life, despite the fact that things continued to not go well for him. It didn't get better after this. His circumstances got worse, but his hope was in a God that though he might not see it, God's word would come to pass. We are all tested. All of us are. Maybe not like Jeremiah, but we have our tests. We have our breaking points. We have it where our hopes don't get fulfilled in this lifetime. We may have all sorts of dreams and hopes that get dashed. And we have to end up living in the failure of it. One after the other after the other. But Jeremiah's story in the midst of the darkest day of Judah is worth listening to because it offers us hope. It gives you hope. It gives me hope. It helps us see that waiting is worth it, that God is faithful, that he is a covenant-keeping God, and that he will bring about all the good that he promised. What is the plot of land that God is telling you to buy today? What great or even small action is God asking you that would indicate an investment in the future, even though it doesn't look so bright? What signpost of hope has God called you to raise to a world that is in despair? We too are living in a time of great upheaval. Wars and rumors of wars, famine and pandemics, pestilence and division, corruption and crime, a world of millions of refugees who've been driven from their home, trying to find a safe place to live, and it looks like we're losing the very things that we put our confidence in before. We may be personally under siege, you may feel all of the heat and the pressure outside your gates. The enemy's army may be camped on the very field you're being asked to purchase. But it's precisely in the midst of this looming despair that God gives this word of hope. Houses and fields and vineyards will be bought again in this place. I hear the Lord saying that to us. We are not a people of hopelessness. We're a people of hope strapped to Jesus. And where he goes, we go. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Amen. Donna's going to come and we're going to pray for you. This has become our tradition here lately. And I'm always grateful for what insight she brings. But more importantly, I want you to see that our heart is to be praying for you, whatever you're facing and under whatever siege you may be in. So I pray that this will minister to you and the Holy Spirit will continue to minister even as you're there.
Chris has exhorted and declared to us the true grace and undeserved favor of God. And 1 Peter 5 says, Therefore be steadfast and persevere in this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion in fierce hunger, seeking someone to devour. But we can resist him, being firm in our faith, knowing that whatever we are suffering, it is like the suffering of other believers all around the world. Whatever our situation is, it's not unique. It's common. And after you have suffered for a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his own eternal glory in Christ, will himself personally restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you because he has all power, authority, and rule over all things forever and ever. Amen. If you're in a place today and these words speak to you and you're in need of just the Lord helping and encouraging you, you feel under siege, you feel restricted, you feel imprisoned, you feel in bondage, you feel defeated. God is here to help you. He's been here the whole morning. And if that's where you are, would you just stand right where you are so that we can pray for you. Anyone at all that would like to stand, we'd like to pray for you. Amen. Father, forgive me, forgive us for feeling the squeeze of life and responding with less than faith. For feeling um, the weight of the circumstances or the challenges or just a long season of waiting, Lord, and giving in to our own perspectives about that and our own solutions. You are asking us to believe you and then to take action on that belief. Thank you, Father, for the word of hope to buy the field. That when there's nothing hopeful to see, Hope does not live in us or in our circumstances, but you are the hope. And when you say believe, we can believe. And when you say buy, we can. So Father, I thank you for the word of both conviction and promise. It's who you are. It's how you relate to us. And I pray for each of us that we would have the courage and the faith to say yes to you in this thing. That as you touch the things that we've let fall by the wayside, the things we felt were hopeless, that when you breathe on them, Lord, we will agree with you and they will live. Yes. If you're standing and, and want the Lord to see you, would you just maybe reach out your hands to him? Open your heart. Breathe in the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us again. 
Lord, I pray for everyone here today that is feeling under siege. Being mocked, imprisoned, and maybe in their own doing. I pray for all of us, God, that are feeling hopeless. May the eternal hope that is Christ Jesus turn us to a new direction and into a new place. That that which was overwhelming to us could be turned over to you, that we could walk in hope and confidence that God promises to do all that he said he would do. Lord, I pray for everyone that's standing and any of those that could not or those that are watching, if they are imprisoned by their own sin, by their own despair, by their own anxiety or fear or worry or sickness, infirmity, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and break the bonds that are upon them, that they would be set free, that it was for freedom that you set us free, and that they would find hope springing up And that their anchor would set and it would be firm and a solid rock. God, I pray for us as a community of faith that we would be able to transmit hope in a hopeless world. And that that which is dark all around us, we would be able to be light in their midst. Help us, O God. Minister to us and through us. In Jesus' name.